Thanks, Nathan. And uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome here to Bethany. Glad that you could be with us. Can you guys hear me okay? Is the thing on? Good. Uh, we're doing a series, and we're just finishing up on the fruit of the Spirit. This is the last in a list, and this morning we are discussing uh, self-control. When the world is on fire, as it is right now, we have options of how to respond. Some respond in anger. Some respond in anxiety. Some respond in disengagement. All of those responses leave a void in our hearts. And then uh, we respond to that void with a, with a self-medicating, kind of numbing of the pain in our souls. And it's that propensity to self-medicate our pain away that is at the core of Jesus' invitation to exercise self-control. So I'm going to pray and then ask you to join me as we study the fruit of the Spirit self-control this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much that we can gather both within these walls and online and listen for your voice and invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We're mindful of the very painful state of our world all across the globe every week. So as we open our hearts to you, Jesus, feel assaulted. It's just so painful to watch. Some of us feel almost a sense of guilt for having creature comforts when so many don't even have a pillow. Uh, so would you teach us how to live in this moment as people of hope, uh, using what you've entrusted to us to be people of hope, representing your heart well in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by contrasting for you self-control that's in the Bible with uh, what in our culture is conventional wisdom usually called stoicism. Now, stoicism is a form of self-denial that requires of you a great deal of willpower. And willpower in this paradigm of stoicism means that you deny yourself something that you want, and in exchange, uh, you embrace things that you don't want. So, for example, uh, you resist the urge to surf the internet and instead you finish your expense report. Or you, some of you in the room reach for a salad when you crave a burger. It's inconceivable to me, but some of you do that. It's beautiful. Some of you bite your tongue rather than making a snide remark. So the stoic model says, hey, I'm just gonna kind of grit my teeth and do the hard thing and deny myself what I really want. Here's the problem. Repeated testing has shown that this stoic mentality takes a mental toll so that uh, psychologists are now declaring that willpower is a muscle. It's like a muscle that gets fatigued from overuse. In other words, you can only deny yourself so much. You have this limited capacity. How have uh, uh, psychologists come to this conclusion? Well, some of the earliest evidence comes from the lab of Roy Baumeister. In one early study, this is what he did. He brought subjects into a room filled with the aroma of freshly baked cookies. Now, if I could have piped the aroma in this morning, 
I would have, so you can fully appreciate this. So uh, there's, you smell the cookies. There's cookies on one table and a bowl of radishes on the other table. And then uh, you, based on the number that you got when you came in the door, some of you were given cookies. And some of you had to eat the radishes that are over there. And then after you've eaten for like 10 minutes, you were given a ridiculously difficult geometry problem to solve. That like a good mathematician, it would take them 30 minutes to solve. Here's what's so funny. The radish people surrendered after nine minutes on average, say it's too hard. The cookie people solved the problem. What does that tell you? Don't run to the bakery as soon as this is over. It's not the point. The point is this. It has led to this conclusion that you have this kind of limited bowl of self-control in your life and that if you exhaust your self-control in one area, then you don't have any self-control remaining for another area. Now, this explains a lot of things, including the fall of many prominent Christian leaders who may be super self-disciplined in sermon prep and in leadership, and so they're, they're, they're doing it here and here and here and here, but it's all willpower, and then they're self-medicating over here with some kind of a sexual thing or some kind of a food thing or some kind of an alcohol thing, and pretty soon the whole thing collapses, right? So uh, we try, and when we try, we exhaust uh, some of our limited capacity for self-control, and then a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. We try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. And this is not self-control. That's stoicism. And what happens is you're exercising self-control in exercising. You're exercising uh, self-control in food choices. You're exercising self-control in uh, your response to what is happening on, online, politically, with polarization. You're exercising self-control in your response to what's happening globally in Haiti and in Afghanistan. You're exercising self-control in your responsibilities to your parents, to your children. And here's the thing, self-control, 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 and then you're getting assaulted. Boom, Haiti, boom, Afghanistan, boom, politics, boom, masks. And then you thought you were at the end of COVID, and at the end of the service, I'm gonna say we have to mask up again, and you're exhausted. Can anyone identify? Of course. This is where we live right now. And so how in this environment can I have the quote-unquote willpower to not self-medicate the pain away of living in such a dark and terrible time as we live right now? How do I do that? Well, I'm glad you're here. That's what we're talking about this morning, right? Because self-control is the topic and I'm going to pause it at the outset that I'm not calling you to exercise more self-discipline, more willpower. I'm saying to you that self-control is a byproduct of abiding in Christ. And so you don't need more willpower, you need more intimacy. But this intimacy is predicated on a few things. Number one, appetites under control. Number two, a deep groundedness in Christ. Number three, a commitment to purpose and calling. 
No single one of those will, will eventuate in self-control, but those three taken as an ecosystem can lead to the reality of self-control realized in your life as a fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to look at those three things. Number one, self-control does require appetites under control, which you cannot do on your own, but it's required. So let's just look at this for just a minute. Appetites under control is why Paul says what he says in Philippians 3, verses 17 to 19. Paul declares there that it's important to find and follow examples in your life, people who exemplify self-control. And so this is what he says, verse 17. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in me. That's what Paul says. And and join them in following my example. This is very interesting. Paul does not say, uh, follow those who walk according to the doctrine you have in us, or follow those that uh, exemplify the teachings you have in us. Paul says this, look, when the day is done, the most important thing when you're looking for examples to follow, the most important thing is not doctrinal perfection, is not one's ability to articulate and defend uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something like that. The most important thing, says Paul, is this. uh, Find someone who exemplifies the character of Jesus, latch on and follow that. That's, That's what you need. Why? Because when the day is done... What does Jesus say? We will be known, not by our preaching, not by our programs, not by the size of our church, not by our quote-unquote impact, though those things are not unimportant, but Jesus says this, you will be known, verified by your fruit. It's by your fruit. In other words, it's like, how are you living? That's what matters. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and what? Self-control. So find examples and latch on to those. I say to the staff here at Bethany, uh, look, we have a mission statement. We have uh, vision. We have strategic priorities. We have goals. We have tactics attending to those goals. We have resource allocation attending to various tactics. We have personnel. We have an HR person. We, We have performance reviews that we do on one another. We have all that stuff that makes for a healthy organization, healthy team. It's good. It's important. But you can have all of that and still, here's the deal. If you don't look like Jesus, when the day is done, it doesn't matter. Because what I say to the staff is no matter our vision statement, ultimately, you will become who we are. Does that make sense? Like, we are being to you an example. I don't always like that. I don't always wish it were true, but it is. And therefore, who we are is more important than our vision statement and mission statement and strategic priorities. And so if I am a person who's, quote unquote, killing it in terms of global impact, but my heart displays pride, anger, territorialism, uh, uh, unteachability, I'm saying to you, And Paul is saying, don't follow that person. Find an example that looks like Jesus and follow that person. And so it's important to you, just practically, I'll say this, 
all of us should be choosing in our lives people that we want to follow. And understand that when you choose someone in your life that you want to follow, you're not saying that person is perfect. You're not putting such a person on a pedestal. But you're saying, I see something in that person, something that is displayed consistently enough that I want to learn from that and follow that. And so when I was in architecture, I found students that were a couple of years ahead of me, and I, I'd, I'd latched on, and I picked their brain, and I asked, how do you do this? And in our ministries here at Bethany Community Church, we have older moms mentoring younger moms in what's called a, a mops ministry. And we just saw a beautiful video about urban impact and people who are a little bit ahead, a little bit further down the road in uh, starting and running and expanding a business and people are learning, they're following example. Example of parenting, example of business, example of spiritual disciplines, example of whatever it is that you want. Find someone who exemplifies that in a manner that looks like Jesus. Those are the people you want to follow in your life. And I will say to you, collectively, thank you, There are examples in the room of faithful service. Ken Edgar, decades serving Christ all around the world, wherever there's a need. There's examples of solid leadership. Skip Lee, my friend. Uh, Shepherding, staff, making an impact around the world. There's examples of, of teaching and leadership. Mike, my friend. And I look to people and I go, there's something that I need to learn from. Find examples and follow them. And then, in addition to the positive exhortation, there's a warning. Paul says in Philippians 3.18, in contrast, he says, there are many people who are what Paul calls enemies of the cross And he says these enemies of the cross are identified by the quality of their lives. And in other words, he's saying that they're bad examples because they don't look like Jesus. They might carry big Bibles, but they don't look like Jesus. They might argue doctrine, but they don't look like Jesus. They might prove truth through logic, but they don't look like Jesus. They may have voted for the best candidate, but they don't look like Jesus. Paul is saying that where the fruit of the Spirit is absent not just through an acute failure of judgment, but in this chronic way, a chronic display of pride, anger, self-righteousness, greed. Don't follow that person. Why? Because Paul says, at the root of such a person, their God is their appetites. That's what Paul says. In other words, there's some void in their lives, and they are seeking to fill that void through their influence and leadership. Don't follow that person. Some people seek to fill the void through food, some through sexual satisfaction, some through wealth, some through market share, fame, influence. Some must be right. That's what fills the void. Some must be powerful. That's what fills the void. Some must be physically comfortable. That's what fills the void. But if, you, if there's a void in a life and I must fill that void, then I'm enslaved to that appetite. And Paul says, that is not a good example. And so neither follow such a person, nor, and this is to our point this morning, nor be such a person who has this void that can only be filled in a certain way. Because Paul is saying that when we're driven by appetites, we're giving appetites too much power. 
And we're operating then out of a place of emptiness rather than a place of fullness. Uh, what are your appetites? Well, you can know that through looking at your visa bill. There's a declaration of your appetites. How are you spending your money? You can know that by looking at your outlook calendar. How are you spending your time? You can know that by looking at your internet browser. What uh, scratches your itch? You can know that if you took the Enneagram. Anybody, you know what I mean when I say that? Raise your hand if you know. Look at this. We're a weird culture here. <laughs> we all know our numbers, right? If you don't know, I'm just gonna say this, don't even worry about it, it's not a big deal. But if you do know, you know that threes, I'm part three and part seven, you, you, I mean, you know that threes, we have an appetite for having a great reputation. So every sermon I preach, I go home and beat myself up over, this word could have been better. That word, it was too long, it was too short, it wasn't funny enough, it was too boring. How can I make it better? Not because I want to be better, but because I want your approval. That's unhealthy. And then if I don't have your approval, I'm a seven. And I'm like this, I'm out of here. Because <laughs> sevens are always searching for the new fun thing. So, you know, a bad Sunday... And this is me. Villas in the Dolomites for sale. Because ski bum and climbing is way more appealing than preaching to any of you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Appetites can be used to fill the void that comes from our failure to live out from the next two pieces of our ecosystem. Uh, the divine yes and being rooted in Christ. So I need these other two pieces so that I can overcome my appetites. But my appetites must be under control if I'm going to exercise self-control. How can my appetites be under control? Well, it requires of me a deep groundedness. Like I, Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we would be rooted and grounded in Christ. And of course, this is Jesus at that trial. We've, we've already heard it, Right? Uh, uh, in, in John 18, let me just turn there and read it one more time for you. Jesus has been uh, betrayed, arrested, and is now in front of the religious authorities in, in John 18. And so the high priest is questioning Jesus about his teaching. And Jesus says, hey, I've spoken openly to you. I was taught in the synagogue in the temple where all the Jews gather together. Spoke nothing in secret. Why question me? Question those who heard what I spoke. They know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing there struck Jesus, like hit him in the face and said, is that the way you answer the high priest? Now, let's just enter into this for a moment emotionally, right? Jesus uh, has washed his disciples' feet served what's called the Last Supper to them, knowing he's going to be betrayed, knowing all the disciples are going to abandon him. He is betrayed. The disciples do abandon him. He's arrested. He's taken away. And now he's, quote, unquote, remember, this is God we're talking about. He's on trial for heresy. And some punk hits him because they don't like his answer that he gave to the high priest. Now, I would say, just from a human perspective, Jesus having a bad night right? And, and, and inside, like when I enter into this fully, that guy strikes Jesus and says, is this, 
like, this is what he's saying. Hey, show some respect to the high priest. Man, when I read that in my devotions, I remember I wrote down, how would I have responded at that moment? Like knowing that I'm God, right? Here's some options. Watch it, punk. You're on the wrong side of history here. Wait, three days, man, you'll see, right? Or number two, hey, be careful. You have no idea who you're dealing with, right? Or number three, uh, he might be a high priest. I'm a higher priest, right? I I know these things because I do this online. And then I erase it in my better days. But this is the world we live in. Kind of snarky responses. What does Jesus say? Hey, if I said something wrong, tell me. Wow. Self-control. Jesus goes on to face a ridiculously unjust evening. An evening in which every power structure in the world would conspire against him. The high priest was behind the initial arrest, and he incited the crowd so that they moved from shouting Hosanna to shouting crucify him. And in the process, we learn just how dark the high priest's heart is and just how easily crowds can be manipulated, even crowds that claim to follow Jesus. And then he's struck by the assistant of the high priest, and he's hated by the crowd who call for his crucifixion, and then he's abandoned by his disciples, the church, the state, the occupying empire, and his own followers. Everyone abandons him, and the forms of abandonment include betrayal, denial, hateful words, slander, beatings, being spit on, ultimately hanging on a cross, being executed while people are mocking him. So of course it would make sense that when they're mocking Jesus while he's hanging on a cross after all that he's endured, of course it would make sense that Jesus would say this. These are his words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he invites uh, one of the disciples to care for his mom. And then after the resurrection, he restores Peter, imparts the Holy Spirit, and and, uh, calls the disciples who've abandoned him. I mean, he walks through a wall and sees them and says, to those who abandon him, this is his first word. Peace be to you. Self-control. Hey, I have news. You don't have that kind of self-control. And I don't either. But knowing you don't have that kind of self-control and knowing that you're called to that kind of self-control is the crux of the Christian life. That's it right there. Why? Because if you've been at Bethany any length of time at all, You know this. I say it all the time. The Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. I mean, at the end of Matthew uh, uh, 7, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, here's Jesus' summary statement. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father Father in heaven is perfect. Really? I'm done. Oh, no, no. That's the calling. I can't be. Like, in my best stoic moment, I'm exhausting my willpower. I'm not calling it a willpower. I'm calling it perfection. Where does perfection come from? Abide in Christ. Why? Because the one who has perfect self-control lives in you and will then enable you to be who you could never be on your own. A person of joy when you're, everything in you is sorrow. A person of peace when everything in you is anxiety. A person of generosity when everything in you is clinging. And a person of self-control when everything in you wants to self-medicate 
with another burger, another Ben and Jerry's, another Villain of the Dolomites, another Frasier rerun, another porn encounter, whatever it is for you, you don't need it. Why? You have the capacity to display Jesus. And by the way, not just the capacity, the calling. So how does Jesus exercise that self-control? Well, uh, John 13, which is kind of the beginning of this end-of-life narrative for Jesus, this is what we, like just before he uh, washes the disciples' feet, this is what we hear. Jesus, knowing that he had he'd been given all things from the Father, knew he'd come from God, knew he was going back to God, knew that he'd loved everybody, it says he took aside uh, and removed his garment and put the towel around and washed the disciples' feet. He knew that he'd received all things. How about you? Oh, remember this? Ephesians 1, 3. You, blessed with every spiritual blessing. You, 2 Peter 1, given all things pertaining to life and godliness. You, uh, Ephesians 1, 4, adopted into God's family. You, John 17, filled with the Holy Spirit. All the capacity of Christ himself is yours. You've been given all things. Do you know your origin? Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. When you, like from conception, you're uniquely designed to express Christ to a world desperate for meaning and hope. You are. You have a calling. You know your destiny? God is irrevocably, unconditionally, infinitely for you. You are headed toward perfection. Philippians 1.6, knowing this, that he who began a good work in you, God, will be faithful to complete it until the day Jesus returns. Will you stumble? Yes. Will you fail? Yes. Will you slip and fall? Yes. Whatever. The trajectory is right. Get up and keep going. So you, so you have all things. You know your origin. You know your destiny. And by the way, you know that history is headed toward the summing up of all things in Christ. So you can turn on the TV and you can watch people hanging on airplanes and you can watch California on fire and you can smell the smoke where we live and you can see and you can, and you can jog Green Lake and ask what happened to your city. <laughs> and know this, it's not the end of the story. Behold, here's Jesus. I am making all things new. Do, do empires rise and fall? Yeah. And we don't know how that story ends. But our kingdom, remember, is not of this world. So in the midst of whatever is the smoke of the moment, whatever is the newsfeed of the moment, we have a calling. Welcome Afghan refugees. Talk to him afterwards. He'll get you involved. Serve the homeless. Talk to him afterwards. He'll get you involved. Use your gifts. Care for your aging parents. Love your children. Get, go, to, go to your local school and serve. Don't throw your hands up. Hopeless. No, no. Look, you have all things in Christ. You have a divine origin. You have a divine destiny. You have a divine calling. And you know the end of the story. If you don't believe that, you will never have self-control. And for some of us, that's the crux moment of our faith right now. We see all that's going on and we just throw our hands up and say, whatever, I'm done. 
Estimates are that even if COVID magically ended tomorrow, estimates are that nationally in America, uh, church attendance will be down by at least 30% on average in congregations. People have walked away because they're so discouraged. Can I just say to you, (laughs) you don't need to be discouraged because uh, institutions are just a wineskin to hold the divine life of Christ. And the divine life of Christ is alive and well. And you can be the presence of Christ in this city, in this moment. That's your calling. And finally, uh, self-control requires a commitment to that purpose and calling of which I've just been speaking, what I call the divine yes. It says in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, walk according to the power of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So walk according to the power of the Spirit. There's your divine yes. And you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh over here we look at and we're like this. Uh, Okay, Uh, no to cynicism, no to greed, no to fear, no to anxiety. And then we've used up our cup of self-control. Yes to ice cream. (laughs) Yes to overeating. Yes to oversleeping or undersleeping. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like if you're going to just fight this battle by creating a giant no in your life, you'll fail. And by the way, this is where the church has lived for centuries in what Paul railed against in Galatians called legalism. I've shared this before, but I remember in Friday Harbor when we lived there down at American Camp at the south end of the island, there's a little beach you can go to. The church I led in Friday Harbor uh, only met in the evenings when we began. And so I would go down there on Sunday morning and pre- I'd walk along the beach and preach my, my sermon to the whales, right? But as you're going down the beach, there's a sign and it's got little graphics of activities with a negation sign through each one. Campfire, <laughs> cigarettes, <laughs> radio, tent, booze. So somebody comes along, this is, their, this is Friday Harbor graffiti. Smiley face. <laughs> the end of joy as we know it. I mean, can we not do anything here on this beach other than talk? And too often, uh, people who are rejecting Jesus are rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting that exact caricature of Jesus. The Christianity is just this giant no. It's not a giant no. What what does James say? The the kingdom of God is about peace and love and generosity and wholeness. I need the divine yes if I'll ever overcome the no. So a louder no is not the answer. but rather a yes to my identity in Christ, to my faith in the end of the story, and to my gifts and calling. As we close, um, I'll invite the worship leaders to come up here and just encourage you during this last song 
to really prayerfully consider you know, two questions. What is my divine yes? Like, what's, what's on my plate as my calling right now? God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to be doing? And seriously, if God lays it on your heart, get involved with refugees. Give in a certain way. Serve in a certain way. Take that step. And if, it's, if you already know, just ask God to uh, hone in your focus that you would live into your calling every day as a divine yes. And then uh, as well, what appetite is your go-to self-medicating mechanism that is at risk of enslaving you if it hasn't already enslaved you? Name it, name it, and give it to God and be free. Because if the Son will make you free, what? You'll be free indeed. Let's worship together.